electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the multi-trillion dollar effort to shore up the U.S. economy got a few more numbers after the House passed additional coronavirus relief spending. Congressman Kevin Brady joins us. There's no question we have poured a lot of cash into the economic side of this coronavirus challenge. None of that is free. And remember remdesivir. Gilead's potential coronavirus treatment gave us so much hope just last week. But the celebration may have been premature. It was shown not to improve the outcome of COVID patients. And in fact, I think the mortality rate was similar to untreated and a little bit higher, actually. It's Friday, April 24th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. Joe is live from the Nasdaq market side in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew, I'll send it over to you. Hey, thanks, Becky. We're going to give an update now on the pandemic numbers. Global cases have now reached 2.7 million with 869,000 in the United States. The death toll in the U.S. is nearing 50,000. Now, New York cases hit 263,000 and New Jersey is now at 100,000. Uh, Georgia will begin reopening some businesses. That's going to happen today. That state has the 12th most confirmed cases, though, with more than 21,000. Becky. Andrew, thank you. In other pandemic news, yesterday, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo shared early results from a study of 3,000 people that said one in five New York City residents tested positive for COVID-19 antibodies. That means as many as 2.7 million New Yorkers may have already encountered the virus and survived and never knew it. The state's health commissioner acknowledged the questions about the reliability of antibody tests, but said New York's test was reliable enough to determine immunity. And guys, uh, that's just based on the number of residents in New York City. That's 8 million residents. But you got to remember, there are 12 million people who go to work there every day, including all of us, uh, which really makes right. you wonder yeah, that, how big this actually is, how effective statewide. that was. The 2.7 million is statewide. The 20 percent was New York City. But we just did you, Matt, did you, we said 2.7 million twice just now. Global confirmed cases, 2.7 million. Oh. Impossible New York yeah. State cases, 2.7 million. So what is the real global number? I mean, we, we, we have no, no idea. idea. Somewhere between 2.7 million and 2.7 gazillion, I think. I mean, it's really I mean, uh, this test. If you could find this out, I mean, I would go in in a heartbeat and try me, and take a test for this. Because I know. if you could I go back out and feel though. like you have the antibodies, it would change they everything. Gotta really, you know, they got to get really, we got to get it really refined. Which part don't you believe? Yeah. I think, I think, I the believe, I don't believe the test higher. either. I just don't know. I think it's much, I think it's much you higher, think the number- but yeah, I think it's much higher, but I don't know if it's, uh, is it really tell. 20%? I mean, that makes me think. That seems incredibly high to me. That, I know. That's... I know. I mean, but you, you, know you have what? to remember Do, that we are the epicenter. New York right, City is the epicenter for the entire world right now. Times Square, I think. Uh, anyway. Right. Uh, you uh, are but, sitting but, at yeah, zero. Exactly. Times Square. But once again, do the mortality on that. I did it yesterday. It's, I think it's 0.49, which is five times worse than the worst flu. And this is with 
shutting down the global economy. So it's it's nasty and five times worse, but it could have been a lot worse. Seems like anyway, this news yesterday, Meg was doing some great reporting on on this yesterday and listen to her closely. So I don't know what to think. And Kramer has pointed out three times China has you know, said that remdesivir doesn't work. We need to wait to see the trial here. But as Meg points out, I don't think there was a control group on the trial here. So in a week, we're not going to know everything we need to know about Gilead and remdesivir. But the shares dropped a lot yesterday, but then um, came back at least uh, a little bit and then went back uh, down again after draft documents that shouldn't have actually been have come out yet, uh, viewed by the FT showed some disappointing results for the drug remdesivir. The documents were briefly posted online by the, uh, by the WHO, have since been removed, and it referred to a Chinese clinical trial, the drug that, that was stopped early, they didn't get enough patients, uh, but the, uh, it did not improve, it was shown not to improve um, the outcome of COVID patients, and in fact, I think the mortality rate was similar to untreated and a little bit higher, actually, and also some significant side effects. Uh, Gilead said the documents are an inappropriate characterization of the study. They're inconclusive because, as I said, the study was terminated early uh, as a result uh, of low enrollment. So um, I don't know how much more we know. We we need to see much more about remdesivir uh, to see whether it works. It, it, It worked a little bit on Ebola, but not as well as... The antibodies, a combination with an antibody drug, but I don't know. We'll see. Gilead's, Gilead's response on this was that this was too early to tell. The results were inconclusive. But they did say that the data seemed to indicate that there was an improving trend, at least when it was used very early in patients. And right. I, I guess to me, that kind of raises the question. Right. If, it's raised, if it's used early, that's great. But you don't know if these were people who were just going to get better anyway, if it was done early. But it's those it, that, patients who really it, take a turn for the worse that we worry about. How do you save them? It disrupts viral replication. So if you've already yeah. gotten to the point where it's starting to, you're having that immune response in your lungs because the virus right. is already there and it's already a lot. It, it, you can imagine that if it's already your immune system that's causing the problems, then disrupting viral replication is not going to be as effective as it would have been if you did that right at the beginning of the disease. So I don't know how you right. do it on the really sick people. You'd need, it seems like you'd have to do it on anyone that potentially even had it to, to have it have an effect. So it's like a catch-22. Right. Before we launch into our first guest of today's episode, a small interruption. This remdesivir story is a big one. Remember last week, last Friday's podcast title even read, Rooting for Remdesivir. That's how promising Gilead's drug seemed to Wall Street and beyond. Throughout the lows and lower lows of this pandemic, Joe, Becky, and Andrew have been watching drug developments closely, like most of us. But Joe, in particular, has science knowledge that you might not have noticed. That's because, frequently forgotten fact, well, not by him, Joe Kernan has a master's degree in molecular biology from MIT. So when you hear him dip into the science lexicon with pharmacy CEOs and doctors, like in this next segment, that's why. Here's Becky kicking off a conversation about the remdesivir news and possible other COVID treatments with former FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb, I guess this just really shows the desperation to hope that one of these treatments will, will work to improve things. But uh, what, what are you thinking now that we've heard this back and forth? 
Well, look, I don't think this changes the calculus that much on this drug. Um, we always thought that if this, this drug worked, it was going to be weakly active. It wasn't a home run drug, but it could be something that could provide benefit to certain patients. We always thought that if the drug worked, it'd probably be most effective in early disease, not late disease. Here it was being tested in patients with more advanced disease. The trial only enrolled about half the targeted population of patients that it sought to enroll because they just ran out of patients in China. As the epidemic abated there, they weren't able to continue enrolling this trial. And I'll just say it's really unfortunate the way the Chinese handled this. Gilead went through great lengths to get this drug into that country to stand up these trials in the setting of their epidemic there. And the Chinese were not forthcoming about making this information available back to the company or regulators here in the U.S. that can inform decision-making. So it's an unfortunate outcome um, after really what was, I think, reported as a heroic effort on the part of Gilead to get that drug into the into the country. The bottom line is we're going to have trials that read out in May. Um, they're going to give a more definitive answer about this drug. So we're going to know very soon on whether or not this drug's working and what the treatment effect is. What, uh, in the meantime, people are looking for just about any sort of cure. I've heard all kinds of things that have been passed around over the counter type of prescriptions that people are trying, um, even some other things that you need a prescription for that are off-label for some of these issues. I think we've probably all heard all kinds of potential cures. Yesterday, you had the president talking about how, oh, how great it is that um, disinfectant can kill these things, and maybe we can get a shot for that. That has Lysol, the manufacturer of Lysol, now coming out and trying to say, hey, be careful, don't use our products in that way. They're not taken for oral ingestion. Not sure how serious the president was on any of this. But it does get to the point that people are so desperate, and maybe it's very important to be giving good advice, solid advice to citizens about what does and doesn't work. What, what are your thoughts on this? Well, look, I think we need to speak very clearly that there's no circumstance under which you should take a disinfectant or inject a disinfectant uh, for the treatment of anything, and certainly not the treatment of coronavirus. There's absolutely no circumstance in which that's appropriate, and it can cause death and um, uh, very adverse outcomes. So people should not be doing that if that was an impression that was left by any of the reporting um, around comments that have been made in the last 24 hours. We're going to have safe and effective drugs for coronavirus, I believe. I think we're going to have a drug hopefully by the fall. There's a lot of promising products in development, but there's no product right now that's been proven to be um, safe and effective against the virus. And there's really no product that's shown enough promise that I think you would want to use it outside of clinical trials, um, even in an off-label fashion. I think we still have to collect data on the products that we think might have promise here. Remdesivir is one of them. People, some people still believe hydroxychloroquine might have a benefit. The data is very mixed there. There really is no definitive data that would suggest that it's having a treatment effect, but doctors are still using it in some hospitals because the drug's available. But all of these drugs should be examined under protocols that allow us to collect information right now because there's no home run here. There's nothing that's showing such extreme promise that it should be used outside of a protocol. Hey, doctor, uh, your successor, Stephen Hahn, um, the current commissioner of the FDA, was asked about President Trump's comments last night on CNN uh, about injecting, uh, for example, things like Lysol, which now they've come out and, and, and tried to clearly push back on. He was asked about that directly and effectively told people to call their doctor. What was your reaction watching that? Well, look, I think when when these kinds of issues come up, we shouldn't do anything that would try to normalize them or even leave any doubt that, uh, that perhaps there's any um, kernel of credibility or truth to doing something like ingesting bleach or injecting bleach as a treatment for anything. So I think it's just important to speak plainly, um, speak forcefully about these things and speak very clearly. There's no circumstance in which you should ingest or inject any kind of disinfectant or bleach for the treatment of anything and certainly not for the treatment of coronavirus. I think that just needs to be spe said very, uh, very yeah. clearly. No doubt. Uh Scott, is, is, there any, is there anything uh, to a, a UV 
light catheter? Does that exist? I mean, I know that there's other ways of using radiation that, through catheters and things. That, is there anything to that that, 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 any, that would make any sense in any context? Is there such a thing? No, uh, there's no indication by which you would use UV light to treat both either externally or internally a virus or bacteria. The only thing I could think of is that someone might have alluded to extracorporeal uh, blood purification where there is some precedent for filtering the blood in a setting of, for example, extreme sepsis. It was done in Ebola. But, uh, and we do use UV light to, to um, irradiate or to treat uh, blood products to help uh, help make sure that you, they don't transfer viruses when, when you're purifying blood products externally. But there is absolutely no circumstance in which you'd use ultraviolet light internally in a patient to do anything, let alone treat an infectious disease. Okay. Dr. Gottlieb, is there anything that you yourself have thought, okay, maybe I should keep this around, whether it's a Z-Pack, whether it's, um, I, you know, I've heard over-the-counter stuff that I don't know if I want to repeat it on air. Um, because every time you hear about one of these things, there's, there's a run on it. You can't find it anywhere. Not right now. I mean, there's really nothing um, that's shown to be effective and have direct activity against the virus in a way that I you know, recommend people keep it on hand and use it, uh, use it either as a prophylaxis or as a treatment if they think they have early disease. I think the best thing we can do right now is, um, is just good supportive care. And, you know, we're learning more about how to treat these patients effectively. So doctors in the hospital are doing a better job with high-flow oxygen, with anticoagulation, thinning blood, because a lot of patients were getting into trouble with blood clots, um, with other kinds of drugs that arrest some of the overwhelming immune response that patients get in response to the virus. And so we're learning a lot about how to treat patients with this disease. So we're going to see outcomes, I think, improve over time. Hey, Scott, as long as we're talking about this off-the-wall thing, just I have heard that sildenafil was discovered for pulmonary uh, issues in, in terms of opening up blood vessels. Have you heard that that could be so? And, and if you don't, I said sildenafil for a reason because Viagra is such a loaded term. But have you heard that that can, could actually open up your lungs if, if you had some type of a difficulty breathing, that that might actually have therapeutic value in this case. I've seen it written on, uh, in articles. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that. Okay, you can Google it. Actually, it, there have been articles that say, could Viagra help with corona? I'm not kidding. It's, it, it's actually yeah, out no, there no, in, I, the, in the I, literature. I, I, so it sounds it, even it, crazier it, than Pulmonary hypertension, other settings. Yeah, yeah pulmonary but hypertension. Not, not, in a, not in this setting. Okay. Right. right. Not in this setting. I haven't heard about it in this setting. But, but maybe some of this RA stuff might be rheumatoid arthritis or something that, push, that, that mod, modulates the immune system uh, might, or, or, or something for sepsis or for the cytokine storm. These are all things that they got to look at as well, I would think. That's right. Um, JAK inhibitors are being looked at. Um, the IL-6 drugs are being looked at. And these, what these drugs do is they arrest what, what you refer to as a cytokine storm, the overwhelming immune response that people get late in the course of disease that seems to cause a lot of the inflammation in the lungs that leads to bad outcomes here. And so those drugs are in clinical trials right now. Doctors have been using them, but they've been using them inside protocols. You know, what's not clear is whether or not when you arrest the immune response, could you be doing more harm than good? Because right. part of that immune response is also clearing the infection. But it appears, based on some of the early data we're getting, there appears to be a treatment benefit from the use of these drugs in a proper way. So we are learning. We're learning how to treat patients better. I think you're going to see outcomes improve. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. We always appreciate talking to you. Next on Squawk Pod, adding up the additional coronavirus relief spending approved by Congress 
and the cost of entitlements with Texas Congressman Kevin Brady. We've long had a challenge of an aging country where most of the spending today and in the future will be focused on three or four key programs, none of which are financially sound. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Yesterday, the House passed a $484 billion relief package to bolster small businesses and hospitals ravaged by the coronavirus crisis. Here's the breakdown. A little north of $300 billion in new funds goes to the PPP, also known as the Paycheck Protection Program. That gives small firms loans that could be forgiven if they use them on wages benefits, rent, and utilities. And within that pool, $60 billion will specifically go to small lenders, a priority Democrats pushed for after a $250 billion funding bill was blocked earlier this month. As for the rest, $60 billion will go to the Small Business Administration for disaster assistance loans and grants. $75 billion will go to hospitals, and $25 billion will go to coronavirus testing. Once signed into law, the legislation will bring the government's emergency response to an unprecedented total of more than $2.5 trillion. More than 26 million people have filed for unemployment insurance over the latest five-week period. And even though some states may start to reopen their economies, many more will keep businesses shuttered for weeks longer to slow the disease spread. Republican Congressman Kevin Brady joined us this morning. He's the ranking member of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee. Here's Joe. Combined with what we're spending fiscally, uh, Congressman, and then you look at uh, Jay Powell and the Fed and and backstopping so many different areas. If you were an inflation hawker, a bond vigilante, it it would be a time to worry about deficits and about how we're ever going to get out uh, from under this. Somehow we're still at very low rates. And and I don't know whether inflation with, you know, $10 oil, $15 oil, I I don't know if that's where you worry. But what does the day of reckoning look like in your mind, someone that in the past has been very uh, fiscally responsible? Yeah, so there's no question right now we have been focused on trying to reduce economic damage from the coronavirus. We think that helps uh, federal revenues uh, and state and local revenues. Uh, The sooner we get back on our feet, uh, we've tried to inject cash into those uh, local employers, lend to the bigger ones, uh, defer payments where we could, but just try to keep these businesses in place to ride it out. We think that gives us a stronger rebound. That makes sense. But there's no question we have poured a lot of cash into the economic side of this coronavirus challenge. None of that is free. You know, we're fortunate that we came in here with the strongest economy on the planet. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, we're going to have to have a fiscal plan to address all of this. And beyond just suspending here for the coronavirus, we've long had a challenge of an aging country where most of the spending today and in the future will be focused on three or four key programs, none of which are financially sound. So both parties here, I think this is one of those cases where 
Neither party can do it alone. It's going to take both of us with a real fiscal plan for the long term uh, because none of this is free. Hey, Kevin, I mean, you saw the optics back in after the financial crisis uh, when the government comes in and, and helps and, you know, helps business, helps banks, helps the financial sector. You know, we got uh, Dodd-Frank. We got all kinds of regulation. It's going to happen again because a lot of the companies that are going to be going to be saved here had been doing buybacks or paying dividends or or whatever. So you're going to hear the same thing that we these there's got to be retribution in the private sector for the public sector helping out. But at the same time, since we want growth and we don't want to hold back the private sector with punitive measures, uh, it, it's going to be tough to satisfy all the different constituencies. How do you walk that line? Yeah, so, Joe, I think this one is completely different. You know, the bailout really was about perceived wrong. And you could point your finger hazard. at plenty yeah. of people. Yeah, uh, Yes. Yeah. Uh, but this is not. Uh, these businesses didn't invite it. This wasn't misbehavior. Uh, frankly, you're riding the rescue. They. It is the private sector. Here's the lessons learned. Uh, one, when healthcare had this pandemic facing them, what's the first thing to ask for? Less regulation. Give us flexibility to address these patients where they're at to tackle this crisis. Business has ridden to the rescue, frankly. Uh, everything from supply chains for protective gear to testing to the vaccines and treatments. And so, no, I don't see a backlash of more regulation and more restriction based on these dollars because, bottom line, they didn't cause this problem. They've been hugely helpful in addressing the healthcare challenge we have. I think the bigger picture still is uh, what practical ways uh, can we help businesses reopen safely as healthcare permit uh, conditions permit so that we can restore principally this economy? And then we're going to have to have a, an adult conversation about how we tackle what what was a problem before the crisis, which is an aging an aging country with real health care needs that are driving the deficits. Hey, hey, uh, Congressman Brady, the, the question I'd ask you, though, uh, about all this, and I, I, I don't think we want to tax uh, or, or heavily regulate things now. This is the, this be the worst time to do that, because, in fact, what we need to do more than anything is get the economy back on track. But as you said, when we do get the economy back on track, that's when we have to have this more this this more difficult and challenging conversation. Uh, you know, you advocated for lower corporate taxes. Again, I wouldn't advocate for higher corporate taxes today, but over the long run, you start to think about some of those corporate taxes potentially as an insurance policy, given that we now are, for example, spending all of our tax dollars to help these businesses stay in business, to hopefully keep people employed. I think we've seen now the benefit of the the frontline workers who are working at the cashier line at, at Walmart and at Target and there should probably be a conversation about what it means to have a living wage. And so I'm just curious, though, whether you think that those conversations are going to change and going to change even your mind about some of these issues that we might that you might have not agreed with uh, even two months ago. So I believe we um, had one of the stronger economies we've seen in a long time, because first we made America competitive with those lower rates around the world, we became competitive and a better place to do business. Secondly, we incentivized business investment here in the U.S. and their workers and their technology and all. Um, uh, thirdly, we made work pay. 
by letting people keep more of what they earned. And with that uh, economic growth, higher paychecks came along. Uh, I still think uh, the worst thing we could do would be to reverse those policies because I think they were key to us having the strong economy. They're going to be even more important going forward. So I absolutely disagree with the solution of, hey, let's become less competitive. You know, let's take more out of what people uh, earn. But clearly, we're going to have to discussion about have to have a discussion with everything on the table. I, I absolutely get that. But I don't think making us less competitive, less attractive and taking more of what people earn will ultimately look, be the answer. Here. I think we all agree, Congressman, clearly we have to find a balance because you want to have a growing economy. You don't want to tax people to death. That, make, that makes no sense either. I think what I'm asking you, though, is at some point you have to raise more revenue. Even in the best of times, we don't pay for what we currently are doing. And so how are you, as somebody who wants to be fiscally responsible, thinking about that? And specifically, how do you think about the employee, again, the, the, the guy and woman at the checkout line who is now, I think all of us would consider a hero, who is not getting the living wage and how that should or should not change? Well, I, I believe the stronger our economy is, uh, the stronger our wages are, the better their retirement benefits, the more likely they have health care. So I, I, actually, I believe that the stronger we are, the better it is for the average bl uh, blue-collar worker. And our, the last two years had shown those where the, were where the wage increases were going, that were the ones who were seeing the biggest uh, pay raises. Uh, they were seeing more retirement benefits. So I don't think you know, you punish uh, business in order to help that blue collar worker. I think it's the opposite. We lift them together. I do think we're like any, Andrew, we're like any organization, I think, in that the way we get financially sound is we try to drive our revenues up as far as we can, and we try to constrain growth, uh, certainly in the non-essential areas. But we've got to find some smart solutions for saving the really important programs, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, um, really key programs. We've got to figure out smart ways to do that uh, while we're constraining uh, revenue growth at the same time. And I think we can do that keeping strong benefits, helping this aging population. But again, I'll tell you, it's going to take both parties looking at both growth and constraint to get it done. And it won't be easy. I don't want to pretend it is, but we know those are what the elements are. Hey, Congressman Brady, there, there is new real-time data that shows uh, that there were 180 public companies that received money from the PPP totaling $680 million. Now, originally, when that started, that was kind of there for everyone to tap. But now that we know there yeah. are limited funds and a lot more a lot more small companies that need them. Do you think that those public companies should all give the money back since they have access to the public markets that the the Treasury and the Fed have kept open pretty well? You know, the short answer is, is probably yes. Uh, in the beginning, we were just about saving jobs and helping these businesses uh, ride it out. The demand has become so huge, so fast. We really have to drive those dollars into those businesses that don't have those sources. Now, to be fair, the average loan is $200,000 in the PPP. That's a Main Street-sized loan, and it's been, been given by a local community bank. Again, we're driving a lot to small businesses, but we also ought to look at those businesses that have other sources of capital to try to free up money for 
those who don't. And I can tell you in our district, the companies that are using it, local businesses, their, their construction, uh, their healthcare, uh, retail, restaurant, they're just exactly the types of businesses you want to see these dollars go to. And again, at the beginning, we were just about saving jobs and helping businesses ride this out. If we can stretch these dollars even further by directing you know, publicly uh, uh, owned uh, companies to other sources of capital, absolutely we ought to do that. Congressman Brady, thank you. Coming up on Squawk Pod, are you ready for some football? Joe is. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Kernan. This next story, the NFL draft, which I watched, and and. This is an yep. orange tie, okay? It, it, it's, it's, it's a nod to the Bengals. It's a, it's a tip of the cap to the Bengals. Uh, it's, oh not a jump on the band, it's not a jump on the bandwagon for the Bengals, but I think... Poor Bengals. I, it's, I said it's not a jump on the bandwagon. It's a tip of the cap because of the Bengal Burroughs bounce. Here's what I'm going to... This is all I'm going to say. Knows. This is all I'm going to say. Last night, I actually got emotional watching it because it just... I just, it, it, we're all assuming no there's going to be, it, it, you know, it, you cannot believe the interest in an online virtual Roger Goodell in his basement NFL draft. You cannot, I, we were watching, my kids were watching, my wife said, you know, she had uh, some housewife show taped and said, I don't want to watch that. I want to watch mm-hmm. this right now. So it was uh, just so much pent up interest in anything related uh, to this. And, and then that just made me think we're going to be watching football again. And then I'm thinking, but are we? I, I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, will we have a season? But we won a season so badly. And, uh, you know, just watching that. And Chase Young, did you see? I mean, Chase Young, you usually, <laughs> you usually see him on the field. And he's like, yeah, he's a, an average yeah. size guy. You see him with his family. It's like, yes. that guy. If that guy came yeah. at me. Hello. That, yeah, I would. I would. I might outrun him. I might outrun him. Uh, headed, headed the other way. Anyway. Anyway, this year's uh, and Goodell was. It was you know it was awkward but endearing and just uh, this year's uh, NFL draft was supposed to be a, a gala event taking place in Las Vegas, but the COVID nineteen pandemic changed the twenty twenty draft to, as I said, a virtual draft with the commissioner and team officials working from their uh, their homes. Roger Goodell, the commissioner, announced his picks, the picks from his basement. The Bengals, we've already talked about it, number one pick in the draft. Greatest single season of any, really, probably any, any quarterback for sure. But maybe in general, uh, the Heisman Trophy from running back Joe Burrow from LSU, who also, 
I felt emotional watching him talk about southeastern Ohio. And I mean, it is a uh, it's not a great I'm from southwestern Ohio, which, um, you know, this is over closer to West Virginia and Zanesville, places like that. It's very poor. And and go ahead, Becky. Wasn't it great? Did you watch? Uh, Yeah, I watched part of it. But I I was going to say the other thing that's going to be so exciting. Did you see Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson are going to be redoing the match? Who are they playing with? Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. And they're talking. That's going to be great. And Tiger is going to be playing yeah. in a poker tournament at Zaslav, and I'm going to play in tomorrow. We're going to show you more about that. I, I, Are you really? Yes, for, for Mount Sinai. That's cool. And I retweeted something. We're going, cool. to, we're going to definitely talk about uh, that a little bit more, and I'm going to get my gambling fix, although I suck. I have no idea how to bluff or <laughs> see someone or call someone. Yeah, I, I know they're going what, to take all your money. I kind of know which hands. Like I think a, I think a straight is not as good as a... Flush or something, but Flush? I think three of a kind might be yeah. better than a straight. Do you know, you can't be a gambler, are you, Sorkin? You're not. Uh, we, used play, so, we used to play Tripoli. I, I know play the rules from that. <laughs> hearts and spades are my game. All right. All right. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening today. And if you've been around for a while, thanks for continuing to listen. I never thought I'd be doing this from my closet for six weeks. Huge building, isn't it, that we have all to ourselves. We play hide and seek. Sometimes after the show. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod. We are available for free on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package-less and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.